Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Perhaps you'd include Batgirl, too. Batgirl? Batgirl. 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 Bats! I'm surrounded by bats! Using feminine wiles to get what you want? Trading on your looks? Read a book, sister. That passive-aggressive number went out long ago. Chicks like you give women a bad name. Same job, same employer means equal pay for men and women. What in the world is this? Revolving walls, hidden rooms, disguises. What is Barbara Gordon's secret? I'm Commissioner Gordon's daughter. Barbara! Hey, Babs! My fighting is a serious matter to me, too, Babs. But we might as well get a few bobs out Welcome all to Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, Episode 2. Episode 2 is brought to you by Granny Panties. Granny Panties, wedgie-free since 1955. Ladies, do you love the lineless appearance that G-strings and thongs grant you, but hate the wedgies that they give you as a bonus? Granny Panties can provide you with comfort and sex appeal. Just listen to this happy customer. Do you like my new hairdo? <laughs> what? What? Oh, oh, granola. Uh, yes. Well, I was just wandering around my trailer when this tornado just picked me up, and not in the first state sort of way. I was in this peaceful funnel, just watching the cows and toilets fly around, when the twister dropped me down, just like a mosquito on a fat lady's arm. And heavens to Betsy, going through all that, I still didn't have a wedgie. Thank you, Granny Panties. Yes. Thanks, Granny Panties, and soon to be released in April 2010, Grandpa Boxers, with a special crotch pocket for extra comfort. Would you like to be a sponsor for this show? Just email me at batgirltooracle at gmail.com. To start off this episode, I would like to go through some comments and questions that I got in various forms um, through email or uh, in the off-comic topic at the spidermancrawlspace.com or even on my blog. First from Noctis7493. Uh, thank you, first of all, for the comments and suggestions that you sent me. He also would like to know what I think about Summer Glau playing Batgirl. Thankfully, he sent me a link to a picture so I didn't have to strain my tender fingers searching for her. Summer is probably best known for her role on Firefly and Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles. What is ironic is that in the picture, she is wearing a Batgirl t-shirt, so that, that brought a smile to my face. Face and body-wise, I could definitely see her playing Babs. I'm just concerned that she may not be able to pull off the red hair and green eyes. The more I look at her, however, the more I could see it happening. I just need some crazy good photoshopping work to see what she would look like as a total Babs. Someone get on that and email me. I'd greatly like to see that. I actually just watched an episode of The Dollhouse where she guest starred and she was wearing glasses at one point. Totally started to get a Barbara Gordon vibe from that. I still think that Kate Morrow would be a good Babs as well, as long as she is able to get rid of that southern accent. Next we have from Brian. Uh, he turned some recommendations back on me and told me that Mitch albums have little, little faith. 
And for one more day, um, let's not confuse the latter book with the Pickle Award-winning comic event. Uh, he also recommends It's Superman by Tom DeHaven for those people who need comic literature. He describes it as a Superman realistically taking place in 1930s America. Boy, I hope Willis Lane is a flapper. From Steve Rogers, who is a frequenter of the Spider-Man crawl space, uh, he asks, Are there any plans to quickly cover Babs in other media, such as the 60s show and the animated versions of the character? Yes, in fact, one of the guests that I want to have on will help me in this effort. I plan on tackling all of her media incarnations, like the ones mentioned, and including the live-action Birds of Prey series. From Bertoni... Uh, he asked me three different questions. Number one, will you just be doing two issues per cast? I do want to do more. The first episode just had two because of all the business that I wanted to get through. Of course, I thought I would be running long, which was certainly not the case. But I feel like around four will be the average. Second question is, will 25 minutes be the average length? I honestly do not know. Uh, I feel like I would prefer to get an average of 45 minutes, but I seem to be yammering pretty quickly. It is also going to be faster since I am, obviously, by myself. When I bring someone on with me, though, it will no doubt run longer. And his final question is, what is the podcast schedule? Weekly, monthly, bi-weekly? For the most part, it will be monthly. I have a busy schedule as it is, and podcasting is hard work. No one realizes it until you're actually doing it. With that said, if I find more time here and there, I may produce more than one a month. Apparently, in trying to explain how I came in contact with Babs, I made it seem that people who like the animated series version have no authority on the issue. I actually wanted to say the opposite of this. I have been accused of only liking Babs because of Batman the Animated Series, and that fact seems to get a bad rap. While my experience of the character came from other means, I actually really applaud such animated series as Batman the Animated Series and uh, Justice League Unlimited or just Justice League. Like I said before, I became a huge Hawkgirl fan from the Justice League series. You know, while we may not know Babs from... Um, the same media. We do like her for the same reasons, and I'm not at all judgmental of that, and I'm sorry if it did come off that way. Thank you for those who sent me comments and questions, and thanks especially to Zayas over at um, Escape from Tomorrow uh, for promoting my podcast. I greatly appreciate those, um, those pimpages, or those pimps, I guess, and I will reward you in kind by promoting your blogs or your podcasts and setting up links on my blog, which I have done. So, thanks again. So, first I have a little bit of news to get through before the reviews. CBR, Comic Book Resources, compiled the 75 most iconic DC Comics covers of all time in celebration of DC's 75 years in the business. Batgirl's entrance in Detective Comics number 359 fell at 49, covered by Carmine Infantino, tied with Sandman number 8. The Killing Joke, something that will have dire consequences for Babs later on, came in at number 4 with the cover by Brian Boland. No surprise that Action Comics number 1, covered by Joe Schuster, came in at number 1.
And a bit of news that is quasi-Batgirl related. Uh, in the last episode, I told you all that it was falsely rumored that Miley Cyrus would be playing Batgirl in the next Batman movie. Now there are some rumors that Taylor Swift will be playing Supergirl in a rebooted Supergirl movie. I'm sorry, it's very hard to talk now because literally I am laughing at this. Um, it seems that there's a desire to have a strong superheroine hit Hollywood with all of the men that are present in the movies already being produced. While this rumor is being described as likely as Miley Cyrus being Batgirl, it isn't as much as a leap as Taylor has already done an acting stint in the upcoming Valentine's Day. I think I'll probably always think of Helen Slater as Supergirl, though I did enjoy the revamp of the character in Justice League Unlimited. It was a beautiful character design, and she deserved to finally get rid of the skirt and t-shirt and become more adult. But enough with the news. Let's actually get into what this podcast is all about. Reviews. This episode, I'm going to be reviewing four different issues. Detective Comics, number 363 coming out in May 1967, World's Finest Comics, number 169, coming out in September 1967, and the recent Batgirl issues, number 2 and number 3. First up, we have Detective Comics, number 363, also known as the true-false face of Batman. The cover penciler, can you guess? It is Carmen Infantino. The cover inker was Murphy Anderson. The writer was Gardner Fox, the internal penciler was once again Carmine Infantino, and the inker was said green. Some memorable quotes that I liked to pull out from this issue were, You were expecting maybe Miss America? Yowp! It ain't a her, it's a him! Like a worn-out book fella, you're going out of circulation. We must respect Batgirl's ways and means, Robin. It's enough for us to know she has them. We first catch up with Batgirl in the Amerindian Museum in Gotham City, beating up some crooks. She gets herself into a bit of a bind and gets a tracer unknowingly planted on her cow before Robin and Batman rescue her. I guess that makes them even. Batman wonders how Batgirl knew about the heists, but she says that even she cannot reveal her means and challenges Batman's deductive skills. Batman tells Batgirl he is going to show her a surprise in the Batcave. Robin and Batgirl are both wondering as to what this surprise could be. Frankly, I had hoped that it was a celebratory cake, but um, I doubt that Batman's going to pop out of it like a stripper. Batgirl then has a flashback revealing how she knew the next in a series of literary heists would happen the, in, in the Amerindian Museum. My gosh. Who would name something in a Merindian museum? Our plain Jane librarian Babs uses her brains in finding a pattern between books being checked out by Phil Crowell and major heists happening around Gotham. From the most recent checked out book, she figures out where the next heist will take place. Meanwhile, back at the Bat Ranch, in a shocking 1960s twist, Batman reveals his identity as a waxy Bruce Wayne. Batgirl notices the wax on his face and the black hair dye and realizes that Batman cannot be Wayne. Batman wants to know Batgirl's identity, but she tells him it is not going to be that easy. Good girl. <laughs> While Robin is still confused about everything that is happening, Batman points out the bug planted on Batgirl, quickly elucidating the events for him. Robin and Batman use the bug to their advantage, drawing the men making the heists out with the false hope that Batgirl knows Batman's true identity. 
Getting into a bit of a tussle, Bad Girl comes to the rescue, taking out two gunmen by pulling a Tarzan. I'd beat my chest and do that uh, cry, but I'd actually like to gain listeners, not lose them. But that's a plus one point for Batgirl moment. Batman and Robin are able to catch the mastermind behind it all by setting up a sort of surveillance at the library and catching the crook when he checks out a book. The final scene finds Commissioner Gordon, Babs, Bruce, and Dick eating dinner. Jim thanks Bruce for letting Batman borrow his identity, to which Bruce says whatever he can do for Batman. Babs thinks she knows that whoever Batman is, it is absolutely not Bruce Wayne. Bum, bum, bum. First, I'd like to go over the cover. I've actually seen this cover in a few places, so I would say that it's rather iconic. Perhaps not as much as 359, but iconic nonetheless. Frankly, I just love the incredulous look on Robin's face at what's happening. What is interesting is that there is a panel of this cover in the issue, which doesn't really happen nowadays. Usually the covers we see now are either very deceiving or vague, but this one tells exactly what happens and appears in the issue. Now the issue. This is exactly how I like to see Babs. She is definitely in her element throughout the issue. Not only is she using her brains throughout as Babs and Batgirl, but she is using her bronze as well. But she's not infallible, as no superhero, least of all a novice, should be. I think she puts a little too much pressure on herself to fall in with the big boys too quickly, because she probably should not have tackled that heist all by herself. Of course, when it comes down to it, I probably would have done the same thing. Every girl finds the need to prove herself, especially when she's up against uh, great males or role models in the business. I like how the writer, the writer, excuse me, blended Babs's life with her alter ego. None of these heists would have been figured out if not for Babs' position in the library. What's more, it seems that Batman and Robin are really respecting Babs in her element. I don't think that there was a sexist comment in here throughout the entire issue, so I was very proud of that. We have the quote mentioned at the beginning, as well as Batman explaining to Robin that he knew Batgirl would know something was wrong after noticing the wax on his face and the black hair dye. This is really a big improvement from Detective Comics number 359, where he showed little to no confidence in her ability. So this second appearance of Batgirl, she's already making headway, and she's already finding a small niche in the boys' club. I did think the unmasking of Batman was a little random and forced, but it all added up in the end. My confusion mirrored the confusion that Babs and Dick felt, so it worked out. <laughs> Dick was less of a jerk, this issue, even complimenting Babs on her bat-back breakaway. Say that ten or twenty or infinity times fast. Overall, there was a lot of unity going on in this issue, which I enjoyed. The captions were well done this issue as well, describing Batgirl as a domino dare doll, and the best caption for Robin was by far the one saying, From behind a couch, the hidden Robin springs like a bird of prey. Now, I know that birds of prey is not even a mini live wire sitting on a brain synapse of a creator, but I still thought it was cool and somewhat quasi-foreshadowing, even if it didn't pertain to Babs. Finally, the last scene was classic. The fact that we have this awkward family dinner with Jim thanking Bruce for Batman was amazing. On the con side of the issue, while it is not so redundant right now, I am concerned that each time Babs has a flashback, she will go through the monologue of how people think of her as a plain Jane and then narrate her physical transformation into Batgirl. My other con is that damn purse. 
but this time she actually refers to it, which makes it impossible to ignore, and calls it a weapon bag. Maybe it's like a Mary Poppins bag, and she can fit a Tommy gun in here? Hmm? <laughs> this issue was great, though. I thought it was very entertaining, and I was pleased by the respect paid to Babs. Uh, overall, I think I would give it 7 out of 10 bats. Let's move on to our next issue, World's Finest Comics, number 169, also known as the Supergirl Batgirl Plot Classic. The cover penciler was Kurt Swan. The cover inker was George Klein. The writer, Carrie Bates. Internal penciler, Kurt Swan. And the inker, George Klein. Some memorable quotes, once again. A special bat compact. I should have known. More of Batgirl's work. She probably left this here intentionally just to taunt me. I need to shave almost as badly as you do. I wonder where those conniving females are. I can't use my fists on a girl. While on a patrol over Gotham City, Supergirl witnesses a large hand formed out of gas trying to grab her. Trying to fight it off, Batgirl joins her and the two end up being captured by the gaseous hand. The two manage to get free and decide that they make a great team. Later, as a televised broadcast where a time capsule dedicated to Superman and Batman is being sent into space, Linda Danvers, a.k.a. Supergirl, and Batgirl become jealous of their male counterparts' success as heroes, and both decide to make the populace adore them instead. Later, in Metropolis, when Superman fails to place a cornerstone into a building, Supergirl swoops in to stop the building from toppling on the people. While in Gotham City, when a crook grabs Robin during a fight, Batman suddenly becomes a coward, prostrating himself in front of the crook and begging him to let Robin go, and Batgirl comes to Robin's rescue. Superman, Batman, and Robin later meet in the Batcave, coming to the conclusion that the heroines are to blame for all the weird events. The next day, coming back from a patrol, Batman and Robin are shocked to find that the entire contents of the Batcave have been stolen. While in the Arctic, Superman arrives just in time to see Supergirl making off with this fortress of solitude. Trying to stop her, Superman's powers fail once again, and he hitches a ride with Batman and Robin in the Batplane. The next day, while busting up a hideout for criminals, Batgirl manages to steal Robin and the Batplane while Batman is busy tying up the crooks. Speeding to Metropolis in the Batmobile, Batman finds Superman who still doesn't have his powers and has several hours worth of hair growth on his face. Batman inspects himself and also finds that his secret identity has also changed as his face is no longer that of Bruce Wayne. Soon, the Batmobile crashes and the two heroes are openly mocked by Supergirl and Batgirl as they struggle to change the Batmobile's flat tire. Restoring Superman's powers, Supergirl challenges him to a duel in space. During the fight, Supergirl hurls a meteor at Superman that Superman's X-ray vision reveals to have kryptonite inside. He hits her with the very same meteor, discovering that it was the blow that defeated her and not the kryptonite. Superman pulls off a mask, revealing his opponent to be Black Flame from the bottle city of Kandor. Meanwhile, Batman battles who he thinks is Batgirl until he defeats her and unmasks her to reveal that Batgirl, with little quotes, is really Catwoman in disguise. The impersonators explain how they pulled off their latest exploit and take them to where they have the real Batgirl and Supergirl hostage. As they do so, Supergirl and Batgirl are seemingly destroyed. But, 
It turns out that they were really decoys as the real Supergirl and Batgirl arrive. They explain that the whole thing was a plot to trap Superman and Batman into another dimension. With the plot revealed, Catwoman and Black Flame are revealed to really be Batmite and Mr. Mixapithalic, who are making a bet to see if they could trick the heroes into trapping themselves. Batmite tricks Mixapithalic into saying his name backwards and restores everything to normal before returning to his own dimension. <sighs> wow. Just wow. Did you follow that? Um, I have to say that the last quarter of the issue was like a Freaky Friday moment for me, but I'll get back to that later. Let's start with the cover again. This is probably one of the single most hilarious covers I have seen, and it doesn't even have any spider cherubs in it. <coughs> ASM 605. <coughs> it is funny to see Batman and Superman with stubble trying to inflate a tire on the Batmobile with a bat hubcap laying on the ground. Doesn't this remind you of a Jingle Bell song? All the while, Batgirl and Supergirl are snickering behind a fence. And, as with Detective Comics number 363, this shows up as a panel within the story. Like I said before, I do really enjoy that. To a certain extent, this story makes sense. When Batman and Superman are invoked as the greatest superheroes, doesn't it make sense that two girls who are just as savvy should become upset? The issue is borderline silly, though. I mean, who would ever think of Batman prostrating himself or Superman hitchhiking? I suppose that was the point, though, wasn't it? I mean, it makes you question what's going on and how these things are happening. But it seems silly to take away Batman's secret identity. Plus, I wondered how he would decide to pull off his cow in an open-air Batmobile. The team-up of Supergirl and Batgirl reminds me of the Girls' Night Out episode from Batman the Animated Series. Then again, it's not really Supergirl and Batgirl, is it? It made sense that it wasn't really them, but then there were some problems with Black Flame and Catwoman, like how Catwoman would be able to steal all the equipment in the Batcave. And did she even know where the Batcave was in 1967? I think it was quite enough to have one switcheroo, but then we have another one. I was waiting for Mixapitalik and Batmite to be robots controlled by Brainiac, and then we would find out that actually Batman and Superman were infected by fear toxin from Scarecrow. Ugh my head spinning. It was silly, and while there are some subtle hints at making Batgirl and Supergirl just as idolized in real life as Batman and Superman, I feel like this is a throwaway issue that even the characters probably don't remember. I was greatly shocked by the fact that in 1967, at least, Batgirl's eyes are blue, not green. Of course, since I'm reading Showcase and it is in black and white, I never noticed this until Batman says he knew all along that it wasn't the real Batgirl, as Selina Kyle's eyes are green and Batgirl's are blue. It will be interesting to see when the writers make the change and whether or not it will be noticeable. Oh yeah, and let's not forget that Bat Compact that Batman found. Well, thank goodness, and here I thought her weapons purse had no utilitarian purpose. I think, due to the silliness of the issue, I give this 5 out of 10 bats. Let's jump to some new stuff, shall we? First up, we have Batgirl number 2, Batgirl Rising, Point of New Origin Part 2, written by Brian Q. Miller and drawn by Lee Garbett and Trevor Scott with Sandra Hope. We continue following Stephanie Brown after she has taken up the Batgirl mantle. We see her fight some thugs, go to class, make awkward introductions to some new classmates, and whatever did happen to those waffles from last issue. 
We find out what Barbara tells Steph and see Babs take on a mentoring role. And is Babs jealous of Stephanie? Also, a new street drug is introduced called Thrill. The best thing about this issue is that it is pretty realistic concerning Stephanie's experience in street smarts. Right now, she stinks as a hero, making rookie mistakes and putting herself in bad positions, either intentionally or unintentionally. This mirrors what we saw with Babs in Detective Comics number 363. I'm glad we had actual scenes at Gotham U rather than just talking about Gotham U. The Batgirl series' strength is introducing interesting supporting cast members. First we had Detective Nick Gage, now we have potentially Francisco. He could be an anchor for Stephanie in her real life besides her mom. As many people may know from reading um, ASM, Amazing Spider-Man, supporting characters are essential and they can really make or break a comic series. And that party scene? Yeah, that's the reason why I don't go to frat parties. While it's still weird to see Alfred as the leader of the Outsiders, I enjoyed the brief interlude where Babs is asking Alfred where the key to the Batcave is. The final thing that is worth commenting on positively is the page, art and writing-wise, uh, where Steph is admiring the costumes and the cases in the Batcave, and Babs lets her know how a costume gets put in there. It's a moment full of pathos, and it begs the question as to whether Babs is against Steph being Batgirl for Steph's benefit or for her own peace of mind. And this is where I'm conflicted. I think that it is a true statement to say that Babs has the right to say something to Batgirl because she has been there and knows the difficult road that lies ahead. However, is Barbara being hypocritical? She's telling a girl that she should not be Batgirl when she herself was Batgirl. At the beginning of the issue, it seems that Babs is legitimately concerned for Steph's well-being, constantly referencing her previous death and the chances that she could die again. Now, fast-forwarding to the end of the issue, we get a sort of conflict with this initial rendering of Babs. Now she is intentionally trying to break Steph's spirits. But why? Is she jealous or concerned? Two questions that I kept asking myself were, should Barbara be jealous of Stephanie? And if she is jealous, does that seem right? For the first question, no offense to spoiler fans, but Stephanie and Barbara are two completely different tiers of heroes, and I think that it seems petty and foolish for a veteran to be jealous of a rookie. Now the second question, does this seem like a correct characterization? I actually don't think that it is possible to answer this. Barbara, as we will see later in her history, constantly battles with her disability. It gives her doubts and makes her self-conscious. So maybe she is jealous. Jealous that she can't use her legs. Jealous that she can't be Batgirl. But haven't we already established that she is extremely angry in these issues? Is she angry at the entire situation and it comes off as jealousy? Perhaps a better emotion would be bitterness. Whatever the emotion, it is clear that the Steph-Babs relationship is not always going to be smooth. This issue, I thought, was an improvement from the first one. Um, we're getting past the sort of the walking stage, the training wheel stage of the, the first arc, um, and I would give it 7 out of 10 bats. Next up, we have Batgirl number 3, Batgirl Rising, Point of New Origin, Part 3. Batgirl continues on the mystery of this new drug thrill. She has a run-in with Scarecrow and gets a free sample of Thrill. Everyone loves a free sample. Steph faces some of her doubts, but regains control. Barbara befriends someone just as angry as her, Wendy Harris, a.k.a. the calculator's daughter. And at the end, Stephanie gets something she deserves, and with Babs' permission. 
Going off of the inexperienced comment I made on the previous issue, I love the shredded costume and the fact that it gets worse as the night goes on. Now, people may think that it is unrealistic that other heroes get into a crazy fight and come out without a scratch and need for a Betsy Ross sewing kit. However, if we think about those instances in terms of experience, it makes sense that a few punk thugs cannot lay a hand on someone like Batman, whereas they could make contact with Steph's costume. The important thing in this issue is that Steph is learning from everything she does wrong. For example, at the end of the Scarecrow interaction, Detective Gage and some officers burst in on Steph, and she throws a battering at a tank that is not as harmful as the nitro canister that she threw a battering at in issue number two. See? She's learning. I think that Scarecrow is a fitting villain to use, not only because his use inadvertently puts Batgirl on the level of Batman and the original Batgirl, but also because Scarecrow forces Batgirl to face her doubts. Visions of Tim and Spoiler puts her on the brink of giving up. Steph realizes that she can be who she chooses to be, and that gives her power. This issue also gives us two more supporting characters. It is Return of the Waffles, albeit in burnt form, and Wendy Harris, the calculator's daughter and a recent paraplegic. I'm sort of torn on Wendy. On the one hand, we have a potential for a story full of growth, and on the other hand, we have Babs seeming to take on a second mentoring role, which seems a tad too much, and it just seems like Wendy is a second Barbara Gordon. My other concern is for the relationship between Batgirl and Detective Gage. As I stated before, I appreciate that Batgirl has a handler, sort of like Batman had Gordon. And while I appreciate the cutesy moment of the note on the car for Gage, I'm worried that there is going to be some one-sided romance. We see a little bit more of this in number four. Let's keep it as a uh, respectful working relationship, hmm? And let's not forget Barbara as a teacher. She's given another role besides mentor, and a role we've not yet seen, so I approve of it. I just don't want it to be too much and overburden the character. Let's hope next issue she doesn't become a cobbler as well. As my final comment, I like how Stephanie gets a respectful introduction to her new costume, and it seems like a throwback to Dick's initiation in Detective Comics number 38. Overall, um, I give this 7 out of 10 bats. I think it was a little better than last issue, and things keep getting better and uh sort of like the christian aguilera song and i approve so as long as everything keeps going up i think this series will do well and uh to wrap up i would like to give my literary recommendation um i just finished the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime by mark hayden it is a story written in the first person perspective of christopher John Francis Boone, a 15-year-old boy with autism who is living in Swindon, Wiltshire. Christopher decides to solve the murder of Wellington, a poodle who was impaled with a lawn fork. It was extremely insightful uh, getting into the mind of someone with autism, and sometimes I found it actually rather frustrating, just because you could tell when someone was trying to help him, but his disability really got in the way of recognizing this. It did make me understand how truly difficult it is um, either to live with something like that or um, to try to connect with someone. It was really close to not being wrapped up well at the end, but Hayden did a good job of giving readers a sense of closure without a neat little bow. I read this book in two days. It was that good, so I do recommend it. In closing, I would just like to say that this is the first show that has the format which I will carry through for the rest of the episodes, so I hope that it had a good rhythm and good transitions. As always, I welcome questions and comments. You have at least a bajillion places to make them. 
you have my blog at batgirltooracle.blogspot.com, my email at batgirltooracle at gmail.com, on the Batgirl to Oracle thread at the Spider-Man Crawl Space off-comic topic section. You have iTunes, and finally you have my Podomatic page, which is batgirltooracle.podomatic.com. Choose your poison. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, and depending on when this comes out, that you have a great New Year's as well. Thank you very much. Goodbye!